Hi, and welcome to Music Industry City's Tuesday Talkies, where we discuss what's going on in the world of music business. I'm Peter Schwing, and joining me today are my fellow co-hosts, Sam Tall, Aisha Adamo, Stephanie Carlin, and The Duke. If there's something you'd like to chime in about, let us hear your thoughts in the comments below. So today, the team is going to talk about Sony Music paying $12.7 million in a settlement, streaming revenue is up while physical sales plummet, using failure to help your creativity, how to begin a new chapter, and we have a special guest for you, Kevin Bruner, Senior Vice President of Marketing at CD Baby, is going to join and clear up this Facebook live streaming controversy. We have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Last week, Facebook announced new rules about live streaming on the platform, and with it came enormous blowback. A lot of misinformation. Uh, Facebook tried to clear things up with a follow-up post, which was still rather vague to say the least, with many in the music business up in a frenzy. To help clear things up, let's welcome Kevin Bruner, Senior Vice President of Marketing at CD Baby to the show. Kevin! Oops. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Hey, there you are. Hey, how are things out hey, west? Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, uh, great. A little smoky, but we're, we're trying to get through it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, stay, stay safe. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, they're starting to talk about like all the hospitals are like, you know, percentage are all just smoke related. So, you know, stay safe. Yeah, keep the windows shut. Pretty rough. Yeah. It's so, yes. So, so yeah, um, I, I don't know where to start because there's, there's so, so many things, but you know, I, th I think where the trigger point was, was that Loudwire article, which I guess, uh, you know, many could consider as sensational and misleading about what, <laughs> what's going on with Facebook. So, uh, and, and I know you've been posting and, you know, thank you for updating us, you know, from, from the distributor side, but also as a musician. Okay, so it's important to note that you're coming from the musician side and from the business side there. So can, can you give us an update? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it was uh, an original message from Facebook that wasn't very clear. It, I don't think it was written by anybody who spends time in the music communities. Um, I think one thing people forget is Facebook is not a music company. Um, their music staff is teeny tiny compared to the tens of thousands that work there. So uh, they are a social platform. So uh, they're not going to have their finger on the pulse of how to communicate with artists in a case like this. So a little bit of grace on their part for that. However, um, they had an unclear message and then the press just, you know, did what it does and uh, just said things that were completely false. So uh, really, what the issue comes down to is, um, by the way, all these policies have been in place. What they were just trying to do is just clarify and say, hey, by this date, you should understand that these are our policies. Um, because they had started putting these in place over time, and I think they got to the point where they realized, hey, we've never really clarified this to everybody. And the one thing, the key point that everyone was tripping on is their usage of the term listening experience. Now, as an artist, I hear listening experience and I think, well, my live stream where I'm playing to my fans and doing a live stream concert, that's a listening experience. But that's not what Facebook was talking about at all. What they don't want is people turning Facebook into Spotify or YouTube. Um, they don't want people 
pushing play on Facebook and going about their day, working, cleaning the house, doing whatever, while Facebook is on the is playing in the background. That's not what they want. The majority of people are doing everything right because these policies have been in place for a while. So if you've been an artist doing live streams and not having any problems, there's no real change happening that's gonna should impact what you've been doing. However, I can only speak about what's happening right now. Who I don't work at Facebook, so what we see happening and what we tell are told that we should, you know, tell our artists and the policies of them place uh, are, you know, what they are right now. And um, a lot of these are algorithmically generated or are policies that are managed by algorithms. So who knows when those get tweaked or turned up or um, or adjusted? Uh, but anyway. So really what they want to avoid is artists uploading what's called an art track, which is like your album art and just the music. These are all over YouTube and they're perfectly fine on YouTube. Facebook does not want them. If you upload that, your track will, your video will either get pulled down or muted. Um, if you upload a photo, like uh, you play peaceful piano music and it's this nice photo of, you know, the mountains or something, same concept as an art track, but it's worth specifying. That will get muted as well. They do not want that. Your official music video is fine. Videos have to have motion. However, if you chain multiple videos together, so you've got like this nine minute, 12 minute upload of three videos, they're all mu music videos. There's motion, mute that as well, because that is trying to create a listening experience. And on the live streaming portion, if you go live and just try to stream your music as if you're just like streaming Spotify through a live stream, get muted and taken down as well. So really the key distinction is what they thought of, oh, this is a listening experience. Everybody knows what that is. Someone grabs a glass of wine, they put on some music and they sit there and drink wine while they listen to music. That's a listening experience. It's a little less, there's a little more gray area when you get down into the music communities about how we might use or interpret that word. So at its core, that's what they were trying to communicate. Now, having posted all that information on Facebook and hearing so many stories from artists, I can say that you know their, their system is still in its infancy. So there are things that are gonna be false positives. There's gonna be things that, um, maybe seem outside of any of the, what I just described, like very edge cases, because it's technology, it's not perfect, um, and they're trying to just manage a whole lot of various rights usages that they don't have the system built out yet, like uh, YouTube. So that's really what, you know, what they were trying to clarify is, we want you to be performing, we want you to be engaging, we want you to be doing things where you're talking to the audience, where they're commenting back, and so, yeah, there, that's that's the basics of it. There's more details I can go into, but that's the basics of it. Yeah, it, and it comes. I mean, there's there's a few things there, with like, which some of the changes are. Originally, you were allowed to do these eight-hour like ambient roles and stuff like that. So it looks like they're pulling back from there. The other is yeah. if you wanted to share videos, that's what watch parties for. So they're trying to, you know, compartmentalize. Wow, I can't mm -hmm. speak today. <laughs> and <laughs> um, 
you know, so like go do the watch party. But yeah, they don't want you sharing the YouTube videos onto the Facebook platform. Facebook loves original content in their own world. And that's yeah. also going to help your algorithm. So if you're even if you're sharing, like, say, a sharing a link to YouTube or something, they really want you to upload that video to Facebook. So so the, the things, you know, nothing's changed in the sense of a don't play other people's music, don't play other people's videos. So those things aren't changing. It's also about the enforcement, though. And I think that's where a lot of this was because of the vagueness and Facebook kind of let's say it was just the cover our ass policy of saying, don't put anything up there that'll get us in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and what you mentioned there also, there's there's some confusion around that because they also were vague in their language when talking about using other people's music. Um, Usually, and when you see that in other social platforms, what they're really talking about is the master recording. Don't use someone else's mm -hmm. master recording. Um, and so, uh, you know, artists were like, this means I can't play covers anymore. I have not seen that to be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, but you cannot play uh, someone else's master recording. However, uh, just like you mentioned the, the DJ thing, yes, people that used to go on there and, and do just like these long DJ mixes, this isn't your platform anymore. They don't want that. Um, but uh, I have seen artists who don't move enough, crazy enough, that they're, they're performing they're singing so still, like whether they're doing electronic music, they might be singing, but they're so mm -hmm. still that the algorithm thinks it's a listening experience. So there's some nuance to it as well. And also the other thing I, you know, working with some artists and having them send me the messaging they've been getting and they, their, their messaging isn't all dialed in around this either. So when your track gets muted because of a listening experience, the message you get might say because of a copyright violation, which is very confusing and drives the confusion because it's not, it's a listening experience issue and you know back in the early days of youtube we went through a lot of this as well where um they were you know people would sign up for cd baby for youtube monetization we would monetize that track and they would get this very intense copyright notice saying that cd baby is claiming the rights to their song and it's just <laughs> felt like doom and gloom and we just stole their and so there's a lot of nuance and dialing things in that they need to do mm -hmm. um but consider you know it's not what the headlines were right. saying originally. You can still live stream. They want artists to be live streaming. They're launching some cool features like Facebook stars where your fans can tip you um, mm -hmm. while you're doing a live stream or just on your regular video. So they're leaning into this space. Um, and again, it's good to remember they're not a Exactly. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for helping to clarify this. Yeah. Uh, and I know it was, it was great last last minute notice. So glad you can make it out. Kevin, it's great seeing you again. We're going to yeah. have to keep on following up. And the one thing you said, and I, I thought it might be would be funny, is like if you were posting something up on YouTube and you working at CD Baby got a takedown notice saying your music was violated by CD Baby. <laughs> so. Yes. Yes. All right. That, and that, that's how the messaging used to look so it, it takes a while for them to dial these things in but exactly uh, the world is not ending at least not from this so not from this all right <laughs> stay stay safe kevin and, and all right, all right. all right i'll talk to you Thanks soon for Bye. Having me.
All right. So uh, Sony, let, let's talk about Sony Music because Sony Music just paid out a lot of money. $12.7 million exact. Well, not exact, but this was to act, uh, artists in a class action lawsuit. Uh, but yet Sony denies all allegations of wrongdoing, fault, or liability, or that it has act acted improperly in any way. This stems from... Yeah, this stems from the 2018 suit where Rick Nelson Estate argued that Sony is contractually required to pay artists a portion of the international revenue received from the exploitation of Nelson's and class members' artistic works from digital streaming abroad. In addition to that one-off $12.7 million payment, Sony has agreed to increase the future royalty payments calculated on ex-US streaming revenues by 36% for the qualifying recordings of all affected artists who opt into the class action suit. So here with his thoughts on this, and uh, I don't know where Sam, got, did Sam just disappear? Because I'm looking at this screen here and I just don't see him. So Sam, uh, I'm just going, I'm, I'm going to put you over here. Here we go, Sam. There you are. Hey Peter, okay. how are you doing? Yeah, you were you were not over in this other scene. So like, you know, <laughs> I, I had to, you know, I had to go make this happen. All right. Let's let, let, let let's put you on this one. Here we go. Cool. <laughs> so uh yeah, Sam. Uh, you know, I saw you earlier. First and foremost, uh, you know, you're in LA, so how are you doing? because Kevin's on the West Coast, he's up north, but how's everything there? Better down here than up there. I'll say that, okay. uh, you know, mm -hmm. you know, with the with the way that the wind blows and with the the location of everything, it's, you know, it's a clearer day today than it was yesterday. And it, yesterday was clearer than the day before. So it's getting better, at least down here in, in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And, uh, you know, earlier when I saw you walking in, I, I saw you had a bagel. I do. I have my bagel with me, my precious bagel. So uh, quick shout out to uh, Sam, the bagel man, a.k.a. myself. Uh, I've, I've been delivering, uh, bagels all over LA County for the last, uh, six or so months. That's my little COVID side hustle. Um, you know, when you move from New York, you, you, you cherish the things that you, you once held dear. And so I figured out how to make a bagel that I'm happy with as a picky person. Uh, so if anybody's interested in bagels in Southern California, hit me up. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I'm going to put the link. You have a, you have a, uh, Patreon um yep i account. got my patreon so, so you can subscribe to bagels now yeah so all right so i will put that i'll put that into the show notes yeah because i've seen the pictures and i'm like oh those look good and, and since you came from new york to la i you know already know that the bagels are still going to be good but uh we have we have important things to talk about so this started with uh -huh. the rick nelson estate and it screams a big similarity to the eminem universal lawsuit years ago so uh Ooh. i'm, I'm going to let you take this one away here you go Seth. all right so just for context to set the tone, um, a while back, Eminem had a whole thing where he decided that the royalty rate he was getting from Universal uh, was based on physical sales, but that digital sales should count as a sort of a broadcast or a transmission uh, and should be a, a accounted at that same rate, which was 50% under his deal. Um, and then that was applied out then to a bunch of other artists uh, under the Universal Music Group. 
Um, the, re the, the rationale being that if you're getting you know, 15 to 20% artist royalty on a, on a digital download that you should be getting 50% for, that's quite a big gap, especially in peak iTunes era where there's millions of dollars on the table that's just not getting paid. Of course, the end result then is that Universal rewrites their contracts so that they can uh, account for that sort of linguistic error and then future deals get done under that new basis. And having done deals uh, with various labels in the past, I can say that it's pretty widespread uh, common language now that uh, digital downloads are counted in the same league as any other kind of uh, permanent sale. Streaming uh, is now having the same kind of uh, moment where if we consider any activity a sale, right, any kind of sale activity, any kind of revenue producing instance of usage of music, you might be inclined to just default to putting it under that same category as everything else and apply the same royalty rate, which if you're a new artist and you've got points out to a producer, maybe a point to your mixer uh, per, you know, some statements out there on the internet, we could talk about this momentarily, but you're ending up in a sort of a 10 to 15% artist royalty net rate as opposed to your 15 to 20%, which is more like the major label standard. And that's really low, especially when we're talking about, you know, streaming payments, not fully replacing download payments. It's really low. Um, so the argument being that any other kind of uh, impact on that amount payable is a bridge too far. Now, one of the things that's super common, of course, is when you have local sales, there are local taxes, there's local distribution costs, there's local marketing that has to happen. There's all kinds of label costs that happen on the local level before that money is then transited back to the home label of that artist, whether it's the UK or the US or whatever territory. And so it's pretty common practice, especially in major label deals where there are international offices, for there to be different rates. If you're a US artist signing to the US label, maybe you get a 100% rate there, but there's like a 90% rate for Canada, 80% rate for the UK, 70% rate for the rest of the EU, 60% rate for all of Asia and Africa. That's common. But the internet is worldwide. And the way that the money is transmitting across the world is not as uh, clean as just sort of like broken out by country. It's a little murky depending on where the user is, depending on which platform, where that platform is based, where their home office is based. Of course, Spotify, for example, is a Swedish company, but they have a big New York headquarters. Uh, Google and Facebook have their, you know, European headquarters in Ireland for tax reasons. There's a lot about this and it makes it impossible for artists to keep up, but also makes it easy for labels to take advantage of the system and frankly underpay. We're all familiar with sort of like really weird accounting practices from days gone by like breakage, but like how do you account for digital breakage? What is digital breakage in return? So it's not a concept that exists natively in digital media. It is in physical and I get it, fine, but why bring that into the digital age? except if to keep money in the pockets of the label and not the artists. So this lawsuit with the Rick Nelson estate and Sony attempts to correct course for that. My fear is that this is going to, it's a small, first off, it's a small settlement by Sony standards. And my fear is it's going to fix the problem, patch it over for those who are in the class now. And it's gonna actually kind of cause more damage than it solves over the long term for everybody else if artists do not collectively get together and demand that these sort of intra-company fees uh, among international offices that frankly don't have to exist under a global budgeting process 
continue. If we don't get together and like make this go away, it's going to get written into contracts. And then we're going to end up codifying this even deeper than it already is. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's interesting is also because, you know, we're talking on the major, major label side. And <clears throat> so, you know, Warner or Sony, they have their independent, you know, their companies in each country, but they operate as its own individual label in a sense, because you go overseas, you know, I'm like, you'll speak to somebody there and like, well, what about like, you know, you working with Warner US to or Sony US to get your musicians in there and you'll you hear things like, no, 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 they just tell us, you know, they feed us the artists and we just push them out here and we have our local talent pool, but us trying to get anything to the US. So they actually are operating as, you know, an individual company with their collections. And then the other yeah. thing is, you're looking at the independent label side. Not, you know, I think maybe we should get somebody in uh, from the independence and continue this because you have in Europe, you have Merlin and Merlin, the collective agreements and stuff. And I remember it was like Apple years ago. It's like, here you go, um, sign this because this is all you're getting or you're out. So yeah. you have the, you know, for collective bargaining and stuff like that. So you have these kind of, you know, organizations that are, that are fighting, but it's like, you know, these independent labels, how are they going to collect or, you know, things like that. And where's the trickle down? So I, I think, you know, it's, it's a good conversation to continue. And uh, I'd like to bring somebody up also from, um, uh, you know, some of the independent label. And let's follow up with this. So thanks again, Sam. Uh, Sam, the bagel man. So, all right, sir. Uh, time to move on. And uh, speaking of streaming, um, TechCrunch uh, stated in its article in an article recently that uh, paid subscriptions are up 24% year over year. Revenues on streaming music are up 12% overall, hitting 2.4 billion for the first half of the year. Physical sales of CDs and vinyl are down 23% for the same period. And streaming now makes up 85% of all revenue in the US with physical sales only commanding 7%, just slightly higher than the 6% made by digital downloads. Here with this perspective on the matter is the Duke. Hey, sir, how are you? I am good, Peter. What a wonderful stat sheet right there. Yeah. Just... <laughs> There's a lot going on. And, and here's that, you know, Record Store Day is September 26th. So, you know, reading this article, I, I, I don't want to knock it, but it's like, why are we even talking about CDs anymore in, in the grand scheme of things? Like using words like, you know, plummet, like it's some hot Wall Street stock option that just fell off the cliff. It's a past format that it has some lingering, <clears throat> excuse me, but why even throw into the conversation like it's some important item? Shouldn't we really be kind of looking forward in that sense? I guess we'd be looking forward, but I guess we need a new physical item to put mm -hmm. into the fold. I mean, like, I think a t-shirt is just the one of the best in 2020 t-shirts still rocking vinyl went away, but then it came back. So I feel like CDs is like, for some people, they're kind of treating it like vinyl, hoping that it will come back. I've had people say that CDs will come back. And their reasoning was that it's a master recording, a digital master recording, which is great. Um, USB sticks are also digital master recordings, but um, I don't know, man, I have no stock in CDs other than all the CDs that are in the closet waiting for people to order so we can send them back out. <laughs> um, yeah, that's how I feel about that, CDs. Digital sales, awesome, but like Sam said, um, this really kind of correlates to what Sam was saying, where is if you can have all these digital sales and you can kind of make all these numbers sound really great, 
But if if we're not eating, then we're just watching other people eat on on the internet, and that's gonna be some grumbly bellies, man. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, you know, because you know people talk about Bandcamp. Bandcamp was a real great savior for the fledging artists to be able to still sell and and collect more than like use selling it through the iTunes store. But the process is changing, and you know, there's that always that conversation. Oh, cassettes are making a slight comeback, uh, but like vinyl has always been something. And you brought up like t-shirts, and, and I actually was uh, listening to um, radio station in the car. And they had an artist talking about like, oh yeah, CDs. We always still repress CDs because they're collectors' items. And you know, personally, I found that like you know, bands when they're live, it's like, oh, here's the merch table. People will really go for an album. They'll spend the twenty dollars for an album, then have it autographed. But would they spend fifteen dollars to have a plastic case? There's something different where that album is like art, whereas the CD is still just kind of. I don't know, a, a, a method of transport, I'd say. Yeah, it's about it's about um, creation, right? It's like, do we want, you got the mug there, you know what I mean? Like mugs are still gonna be good because we have liquid. If we ran out of liquid, man, we'd run out of mugs so fast, you know? So it's like, CDs are great, but there's not as much surface area as a vinyl record, you know what I'm saying? So vinyl records look better on the wall than CDs. I mean, mm -hmm. ultimately, they're gonna end. We're gonna end up on Spotify or, or iTunes or Apple Music, listening to that same thing. But I guess it looks better. A poster looks better than a little square thing. And I guess for if we're gonna sell you something, whatever that something is, let it be something that you can actually use. You know. Exactly. So, all right. Thanks, Abe. Once again, uh, always love your perspective on this. All right. So moving on, we are going to talk about mistakes and failures. We've all experienced them. Uh, I've probably made at least. 10 or 20 during this broadcast alone. Uh, and learning from them is absolutely essential to an artist's creative development career. And Aisha, you know, I, I know that this, am I not on? Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Oh, I thought you were, the way you said hello, I was like, hello? <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, let's talk about mistakes. Uh, you know, some mistakes are something to be expected and kind of embraced uh, as the process in uh, your creativity. So, uh, you know, what what's your, you know, I know you have something uh, really interesting to talk about, so I'm going to let you ride with this, all right? Yeah, so, you know, I'm 100% with that about mistakes and about expecting them. Um, for me... You know, this topic came up a lot in the last few weeks because I just had three of my uh, short film projects at three different film festivals, and I'm really happy to have gotten all three of them out there into the world. But of course, as, as with any piece of creative work, once you get it out there, you're like, oh, that little thing. Oh, I wish I would have done that better. Or even, you know, just the way that you've done the business of it. Sometimes you'll lament like, oh, if I had only done this or, you know, for a musician, oh, I really shouldn't have bought all those CDs that are now sitting in the closet and I have to try and sell. I know how it is. I mean, those are the kind of mistakes that we make, not just artistic ones, but sometimes business choice ones, sometimes ones of... I associated with this person and now, oh, that doesn't look so good. So we all make mistakes and we need to expect it right from the start. Um, and especially like going back to the filmmaking thing, 
it's something that at every budget level, and I think this is true of most creative endeavors, it doesn't matter how much money you have to pump into it or like what level you're working at, there are going to be things that go wrong. Always, always, they will go wrong. And so starting from a place of expecting that, um, it's, it's not a bad manifesting thing or whatever to expect that there will be a mistake. It's actually a, a way of letting yourself off the hook and forgiving yourself ahead of time and letting yourself be and explore in the space of creativity in a really free way. So I think it's a really important thing to let yourself do that. Now, one of the enemies to this, of course, is our friend perfectionism. And perfectionism, you know, it gets a bad rap, which actually there are good things about perfectionism too. I mean, it allows us to have standards, to have discernment. And this in a time when the standards about things are very fluid and in flux. So if we can have standards for ourselves, that's good. But we can't let it rule us and rule the things we do. We can't let it prevent us from putting our work and our message into the world. So I like to think about, you know, getting it to a certain point and when it's close enough, it's ready to go. I remember a long time ago when I was doing one of these um, language learning CDs and they encourage you once you've gotten to 75% knowledge of what's on the CD and answered about that many questions, right, to move on to the next. Don't wait to get to 100%. Just go on to the next uh, lesson. Because if you don't do that, you'll get bored and stuck with trying to get to the 100% and really learn much better and grow much faster if you just hover at the 75% and then move on. So I like to apply that in the things I do. Um, a mentor in the acting world of mine, Bonnie Gillespie, has this launch at 85% motto. And I think it's a great thing for all artists to be able to put themselves out there when they're almost ready. Let yourself have a beta phase. You know, every business out there, and especially in the tech world, which so much of our world is made up of now, has a beta phase, a time to let ourselves work out the kinks. And it's good to let ourselves have that. When we were kids, you know, we were learning to walk or to read. We let ourselves be novices. And I would encourage you to find ways to let yourself be a novice again. Even if the world around you is looking at you like, oh, we don't let adults be novices anymore. You let yourself and let's try to create an environment where we can let each other be novices a little more because there's a kind of enchantment in that moment of like not quite knowing, of exploring something new and letting yourself do that. So I would say this week, take joy in the places that you can be a novice and rediscover that that experience of not having the pressure of being a pro all the time. Take a look at it. Where in your life this week can you be a novice and enjoy it and expect mistakes and enjoy them? That's what I got. Right on, right on. Two, two quick things here. Uh, you know, I always look at the, if you want to get something done, don't wait till it's perfect because when it's perfect, it's not going to be perfect and you'll never get you'll never get to the starting line. It's like you just got to keep going and learn from mistakes and get better and better and better. It's practicing an instrument. It's your band performing on stage. It's writing music. It's like if I'm going to wait until I have the perfect mix or the perfect stage, it's like, no, just go do it and you're going to learn along the way. But you know, failure is like some people are very afraid to fail and it's like at some point you 
have to like teach yourself that like if i fail at something it's not the end of the world it might sting but uh just a quick story is like everybody has had some kind of failure you have no idea and you you look at some of these successful people and they've had some of the worst failures and you know, when it comes to like entrepreneurs that, you know, investors are looking into uh, finan financing, you know, a seed round or an angel, they want to see that the business owner has failed in the past because they have learned something from it. So failure is a good thing and what you can learn from it. And, you know, and as, as a, just as a, a quick story of like when I was working with like an old business partner, I screwed something up really bad. I mean, this was like, oh my God, this is my, this is my failing moment. This is my, this is, this is it. And, uh, we were in the car and I said to him, you know, he mentioned something. I just said, and I go, what, what was your biggest failure? And he told me and I, my jaw dropped. I'm like, it was, you know, multi-million dollars mistake, like a simple like mistake. And it was like, and it dragged out in the courts and it was like, it was a simple mistake. And he's like, that was my feeling. And, but he's still successful. So, uh, keep going. That's what I say. It's just, don't yeah. wait till it, just go yeah, make okay. mistakes. It's more fun. You, you, and you make and it's also that, you know, that hero's journey, it becomes a fun story. So, all right. Thank you, Ayusha. As, as always, it's a pleasure. And we're going to move on. So speaking of artists and, uh, you know, basically, you know, failing, moving on, getting better. Every artist has different chapters in their career and, and lead ultimately to the legacy they leave. So Stephanie's here to answer the question of how do you know when it's time to close a new chapter and begin a new one and not self-sabotage all the way? Stephanie, how are you? I'm great, Peter. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, this really ties here. into what what Aisha was saying. Um, you know, here on the East Coast where I am in upstate New York, the seasons are changing and you can feel it. Right. And I feel like this time of year always brings new intentions, new decisions, like new year energy to life. But in order for these new intentions and these new chapters to have the space to take root, we, we have to end what is no longer working. But we as human beings get really, really crazy about completion, about ending things. We just get weird about it. And well, whether we like it or not, it's what's happening. Uh, live music isn't coming back anytime soon and you have a career to pivot and you have a message of truth to communicate through sound, through this law of sound, these 12 notes we all get and you are a vehicle and a conduit to them and you're here to leave a legacy with them. So I'm feeling the fall energy, Q4 is about to hit and there's probably a new frontier for you uh, and a new chapter to the legacy that is your career. and. I'm just wondering, you know, do you interact with your career like you're worthy of a legacy? Like, what is it that you're here to impact and evolve humanity forward with? It cheapens who you are when you dismiss that notion that that's who you are. And it's par even part of our brainwashing to think that our words and our actions don't even matter enough to leave a legacy. So there's that, right? Can you put the excuse of humility aside to indulge in the truth of that you are here to leave a legacy? And then secondly, can you see that legacy fully formed in your mind's eye? Like what does your career at peak success even look like? Who's on your team? How much money does the business that is your art make? 
or, and then how much money do you make? And what, what's the impact you have? What do you spend your days doing? Does it even feel possible? Because anything is possible inside your legacy because you're the creator of your life. And all that stands between you and that are the thoughts you think around what this 3D reality is anyway. So as we move through this transition from summer to fall, I ask you to trust yourself and trust yourself to close the chapters that need to be closed, to say the things that are unsaid that you know need to be said and do it without drama, without creating a fight or a crisis. Just take responsibility for your legacy. No more self-sabotage. And inside of that, be honest with what's no longer workable because too many people need what you have to give and when you continue living in delusion and untruth with all these things incomplete, all these chapters unending, it just, it zaps your energy away. So that's what I think about that. That's, uh, that's probably because I are. made a mistake. I made a mistake and I had the wrong button on or the, wrong, the right button, but it was on the wrong setting. So, um, uh, yeah, you were talking about, you know, how, how people like inherently want to complete something. And, uh, you know, that's part of that brain just wanting to fill in the gaps. And it's just like the brain's always trying to close out that answer. And it's like going back to tying this into what Ayusha was talking about is like, what's the difference between that failure or knowing when to stop and move on? How would you deter, like, you know, how, how, because people are like, well, if I stop what I'm doing, I wanted to try, I wanted to accomplish this goal. And at some point you go, you know, something, this isn't what I want. This is what I want. But I'm not, they're good. Some people keep going because they don't want to seem like a failure. Well, it's a reaction of living inside an untruth. It is a reaction out of pride and ego. And they're just not things that are going to be satisfying, which is why I like kind of demand in our conversation now that we pull up to the power of your legacy, which is at the source of community, um, humanity and impact. That's whether you admit it to yourself or not, that's the end game. And it's so dangerous to get caught up in the petty shit, like mm -hmm. not wanting to look bad because you failed. It's what novices do. It's not what professionals do. Would yeah. you agree? Professionals look at that failure and it's like somebody calls them out. They're like, yep, screwed up. I think, and I know this is dating myself, but Dennis Miller many, many years ago. So he, you know, SNL weekend update, one of the, one of the greats. And then he had his own show and on like channel nine or something, or maybe it was UPN when all that. And the show lasted like a season or two. And, but people like tore him apart and he got up and he did this routine. And he was like, he said, he goes, somebody asked him, was like, what do you, what do you say to people that were like panning you and laughing at you for losing your show? And he's like, if having, getting your own show and then losing it is the worst thing that can happen to you in this world. I'm doing really good then. <laughs> well said. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It was great seeing you. Uh, stay safe. So uh, that's going to be it for this week, everybody. Uh, you know, thank you all for tuning in. If you want to continue the conversation, leave a comment below. And if you find this interesting, hit that subscribe button, ring the notification bell to be alerted about new shows. You can also find us and join at musicindustrycity.com. Also find us on your preferred play at ah, preferred podcast 
best player. I am really going to get those triple P's down. Thank you again to our host, Sam, Aisha, Stephanie, and the Duke. Have a rocking day and see you next time.